In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The Transfiguration is in all three of the Gospels. We heard it read from from Luke this morning, but Mark was actually the first gospel writer to write an account of the life and works of Jesus. And and dead center, in the middle of Mark's gospel, he recounts two back-to-back events of revelation. The confession of Peter and the transfiguration of Jesus. The church understands both these events as so important that they each are celebrated every year as holy days. Peter's confession on January 18th and the transfiguration on today, August 6th. You'll remember Peter's confession, that famous interaction of Jesus with his disciples where he asks them this question, who do men say that I am? The disciples answer, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. Mark has 16 chapters, the confession of Peter is in the eighth chapter. The transfiguration is in the ninth chapter. Dead center in his gospel. And these two events are linked together and together form uh, the thrust of his gospel. And after these two experiences are recounted, three major changes are seen in his gospel. First, before these two events happen, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God as a future event, something that is coming in the future, of its nearness, that it is at hand. But after the confession of Peter, Jesus begins to call people to enter the kingdom of God. And this is a distinct change. It is as if Peter's awareness signals that the time is right for the world to begin to receive its Messiah. So he takes Peter, James, and John on a week-long retreat to a barren mountain in Galilee. And after that time on the mountain, after the transfiguration, There's another distinct change, and it is in how Jesus speaks of God. After the transfiguration, Jesus exclusively refers to God as Father, my Father, your Father, our Father. Mark here is clearly stressing the sonship of Jesus, and implying that through relationship with Jesus the Son, 
people may actually relate to God as their Father in heaven. And third, although Jesus is addressed by many names after these two revelationary events, he's called teacher, rabbi, master, son of David, son of Mary, son of God. Jesus from then on refers to himself exclusively as the son of man. It's a mysterious identity, which is difficult to understand, and, and certainly mysterious is the right terminology for, for someone who is beginning to be understood as fully God and fully man. So these signal changes in Mark's story of Jesus catch our attention. And Mark wants us to know in the middle of the gospel that things have changed. We're now on a different playing field. The world is actually beginning to experience an enormous change. People are actually entering the kingdom of God the Father in the company of Jesus, the Son of Man, who they now proclaim to be the Son of God. This is a new age, and we are even yet living in it this morning. So let's look more closely at how this came about, at the confession of Peter. Jesus says to him, and who do you say that I am? Peter gulps and says, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. And Jesus responds, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. A week later, Jesus takes Peter and James and John to a solitary mountaintop for prayer. And toward the end of that week, as Jesus was praying, the transfiguration. Matthew says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. Mark says, he was transfigured before them, and his garments became glistening, intensely white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. And as we heard in Mark, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. From the Old Testament lesson, recall what happened to Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. When he came down out of that cloud-covered mountaintop, the Israelites were astonished that Moses' face was brightly shining. 
But Moses did not know that his, fight, his face shone because he had been talking with God. So now, Jesus, only more so. The glory of the transfiguration did not come on Jesus. It came from him, from within him. The Gospel of John puts it this way. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. And if this was not sufficient to astound the disciples, then there appeared with Jesus suddenly Moses and Elijah talking together with him, the two great saints of the old covenant, Elijah, the head of the line of the prophets, and Moses, the giver of the law. There was a popular belief among devout first century Jews that Elijah and Moses would appear to usher in the beginning of the messianic age. Moses and Elijah appear, and Peter, stunned by all this, in his characteristic, impetuous way, blurts out to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say. Not that that ever kept Peter from speaking. <laughs> but with that bizarre suggestion, apparently God's patience had been tried enough, and God personally intervened, interrupted Peter, actually. While Peter was still speaking low, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When John the Baptist had baptized Jesus, Jesus saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And he heard a voice from heaven. Thou art my beloved son. With thee I am well pleased. Now on this mountain, they all hear a confirming voice from God. We might initially anticipate great rejoicing among the disciples to, to hear the actual voice of God. What favor, what honor, how fulfilling, what, what an answer to prayer to their heart's desire. But no. They were not Elijah's nor Moses's, at least not yet. They were fishermen. And when they heard this voice from above, they were afraid, exceedingly afraid. Matthew says, they were filled with awe. In retrospect, it was awesome. 
But in the moment, it was awful. They were paralyzed with fear. They fell on their faces. And there they remained until Jesus came and touched them. Rise, he said to them, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. What an experience. The writer of Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And whatever he meant by that, it would seem to confirm what Peter, James, and John experienced. Seeing Jesus only must have been for them an incredible relief. And what are we to make of these events, of these two holy days that we've remembered for 2,000 years? We, we need to step back and, like the gospel writers, think on these things. Why did Jesus come? What was he about? It apparently was not to make our lives easier, but rather to make them worthwhile. He is the Savior, it is true, and he saves us from many things, but in a very real and most personal sense, he comes to save us from ourselves. For our tendency as most human beings, is to live in a default mode which automatically centers upon how we feel and what we like and what we want and how we can get it. It is the human tendency from the Garden of Eden up to now. And it is this that Jesus came to save us from. And he doesn't do it just by forgiving our sins, which are many. He does it by showing us the way to the Father and by helping us by going with, his, going with us on that way. That's what that retreat on the mountain was all about. He comes to help us resist that pressure within us and from the world around us that, that twists our lives into ways of self-centeredness. Jesus tells us bluntly that our inner tendencies are not trustworthy and that the world of social relations we inhabit is not trustworthy, but that he is trustworthy, and that if we stay close to him, he will deliver us from what the collect for today calls the disquietude of the world. Every Sunday we hear this. 
Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And the old prayer book puts it this way. And I will refresh you. He came to show us a different way to live, a fresh way to live. And Jesus was very frank about the way being hard and difficult and not traveled by many. And I'm talking here about the Christian way. He says, follow me through the narrow way that leads to life. For there is a very wide gate that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. To the extent that we do follow Jesus, to that extent, we ourselves are beginning to be transfigured. For the way of Jesus is a way of transformation. It is toward the transforming presence of our Father that Jesus leads us on the way. And this is the key to the Christian way and to the Christian life. Moving toward God and then moving on with God. Viocondias. Do you know what it means? It, it doesn't mean I'm bidding you farewell and the sermon is over. It means, literally, go with God. Go with God. The kingdom of God is not a destination where we've arrived. Rather, we are on the way. It's a journey. We go on with God, our Father, with Jesus, our Savior and Companion, with the Holy Spirit guiding our hearts and minds and souls in the way of love. We are going with God. Now, Jesus did say, few there be that go that way. And it seems to me that is true. Few, but not none. So let us be some of the few. And let us be in community with some of the few. And let us go along together with them. And along with Peter and James and John, go along with Jesus. See his glory revealed. Enter into the mystery of God our Father. Fall on our faces before him in fear and trembling and wait until we are touched by Jesus. And we stand again without fear and are focused on him once again. In the church, the very word of God for 2,000 years directs us to such an experience in the sacrament of Holy Communion where every week we retreat from the world and fall 
to our knees before God and receive Jesus into ourselves and are delivered from our disquietude and rise without fear. It is meant for us to be a weekly transforming Christian experience, every bit as true an experience as that of Peter and James and John. It is both a confession of trust on our part and a transformation of life on his part. At communion, I see your faces at the altar rail. You don't know it, but sometimes they shine. And it's not just the nine o'clock service where they shine. On this, our journey toward God, Jesus comes close in Holy Communion and touches us, and we are strengthened for the journey with him, who with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, live and reign, one God, now and forever.